I've watched a lot of TV, you know, sporting events. And I've, I've seen plenty of people hold signs up to the camera that says, Hi, Mom. Hi, Mom. Hi, Mom. Hi, Mom. Hi, Mom. I don't think I've ever seen anybody hold a sign up that says, Hi, Dad. Never seen it. John 3.16, yeah. Hi, Mom, yeah. Hi, Dad. Not so much. Well, we appreciate dads. And so I want to pray for the dads that are here today. And I want to do something special at all the campuses. I want to have the dads, the grandpas, just to stand up right now. We're not going to clap, but I just want you to stand up while I pray for you. Go ahead. Come on. You know you're here. All right. And I want to pray for you right now. So can I just ask God to help us, right? Let's pray. Father, I think most of us would say uh, we're not the best dads. We try, but we fail. And I think everyone that is uh, hearing this prayer would say, as a father, as a dad, we, we, we want to do better. And we want to, we want to have an impact. And uh, we're kind of living in a world today that doesn't appreciate fathers and doesn't need fathers, but uh, young boys and girls, young men and women need their dads, and they need that influence, that godly male influence. So, uh, Father, I pray that you would help us to be that influence, to do the best that we can, to acknowledge it when we fail, and to be the dad that you've called us to be. And that you'd give us the strength that we need, the patience, the wisdom, everything that we need. For without you, we can't be the dad you want us to be. So bless all of these men. Help them to be the dads you want them to be. Give them whatever they need. But most of all, Father, help them to grow closer in relationship with you. And help them to have a great weekend as they celebrate fatherhood. We give you the thanks, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. So we're starting a, a new series. <laughs> I, gotta, I didn't bring a tissue. <laughs> so, anyways, this is an emotional thing for me, right? Fatherhood is an emotional thing. And it ought to be if you care about it. If you don't care about it, then you don't care. Man, it doesn't matter. But those of us that care know what, what uh, fatherhood means. We're going to look at the book of James. And it's kind of an interesting book because it's, it's unlike really any other New Testament book. It's kind of wisdom literature. In the New Testament, it's kind of like Proverbs-ish a little bit. It's not Proverbs, but it's like that. And, and the thing about it is, as you go through the book of James and you try to say, okay, where does, where does the flow of thought go it goes all over the place in fact sometimes it's hard to say okay he's talking about something new here it's something different kind of you know like when you read proverbs you read one and then you kind of chew on that a little bit and you read the next proverb and it's a little different it's maybe a different subject completely and then you read another one it's a little different well james does that not every verse but he does it a little bit where he'll read a portion you'll read a portion of it and you go 
does this next section, section go with the previous one or not? So those are, and the reason we're struggling with it is because it's kind of wisdom literature. So we need to take that into account. The second thing we need to look at is, well, who is James? Who is this, this guy that we call James? Because there's a lot of Jameses in the New Testament. And uh, it's, it just simply says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a number of people that it could be. Now, we're, we're pretty sure that it's the, the brother of Jesus. Um, so uh, James was the son of Joseph and Mary. For some of you, when I say that Jesus had brothers and sisters, you go, that's her- heresy. And that, are you kidding me? Jesus didn't, ha- or, or, or Mary and Joseph didn't have any, any other kids other than Je- Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. And, G- and, and James was the younger brother of Jesus, of course, because Mary was pregnant with Jesus before Joseph and Mary were, you know, formally wedded, okay? And so they, uh, he is the younger brother of Jesus, one of the younger brothers of Jesus, and he was raped. Can you imagine being, having Jesus as your brother? <laughs> He's your favorite. <laughs> he never does anything wrong. <laughs> um, it just would have been interesting, right? Uh, what else do we know? Well, we know he was the leader of the, er, the first church in Jerusalem. He was the leader. Now, you, you know, there another tradition teaches Peter's the, the, the leader of the church. And, you know, they go to the passages, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And they say Peter is, is the first pontiff, pope, whatever you want to call it. But as you read the book of Acts, James is certainly the one that's in charge of the church of Jerusalem. In fact, in the book of Galatians, uh, Paul talks about the pillars, leaders of the church. And he lists a few leaders of the church. And, and, and you know who he lists? He lists Peter, he lists John, and he lists James. The pillars of the church. And Paul became a pillar of the church because, you know, you go, to James, you go to Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council, and James is kind of presiding over the council, but Paul is bringing arguments. And, and so there's a lot of give and take there. And, and so uh, you have uh, James who is a leader. He's not just the brother of Jesus, but he came, became a leader. But the interesting thing is, probably the most interesting thing is, in verse 1 it says, James, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now you say, well, why is that significant? Why is that interesting? Well, let me read you a passage. This is from John chapter 7. You don't have to turn there. John chapter 7, verse 3. And you might want to just write it down in your notes. Jesus' brothers said to him, brothers, plural, said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the works that you do. Because we don't believe you do any good works. That's essentially what's behind it. No one who wants to be a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. It goes on to say that they said this because they didn't believe in him. His own brothers didn't believe in him. Now, he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. You say, well, wait a minute. If he wasn't believing in Jesus, his brother, as the the Messiah, then what happened? What happened in his life? Well, what happened in his life, we hear about, and Paul gives us the account in 1 Corinthians 15. 
Again, you don't have to follow along. I'll read it, but you can just write the reference down. And Paul basically gives the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is Jesus Christ died for my sins. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. And then Paul says, and he appeared to many witnesses. And that's the part I want to get into. He says this about it. He says, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. What is he saying there? Paul is saying that as I write these words, many of the 500 men and women that Jesus appeared to after the resurrection, before the ascension, many of those brothers and sisters are still alive. I can take you to them and you can talk to them. They're eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's saying. He says some have died, some have fallen asleep, but many of them, if not most of them, are still alive. Okay? And then he says this. He says, and then he appeared to James. Who's James? It's the brother of Jesus. You see, what happened was James encountered the resurrected Jesus Christ. And he saw and he believed. And he became a servant of Jesus Christ because he realized his brother is God. Now, some brothers walk around thinking they're God. But he is God. And James probably thought that at one moment. and says, oh, for crying out loud, you are God. And he bowed, down to, he bowed down to Jesus. He says, I am a servant of the living God. The transformation in his life was much like the transformation in many of your lives when you came and encountered the living, resurrected Jesus Christ and he breathed life into your soul and you became alive and you bowed your knee to Jesus Christ and you said, you are Lord and Savior of my life. That's what happened to James. That's who wrote this letter. So we've got somebody who had boots on the ground and, and somebody who heard the teachings of Jesus and somebody who lived with Jesus and somebody who's going to show us something very important uh, about Jesus. So I want to read the first 11 verses of James. And you can turn there and I'd love to have you follow along with me as I do that. James chapter 1 starting at verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve, tri twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance or patience. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person, person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers like a plant. It, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. What James is going to say and what we're going to look at is that your faith 
becomes real, becomes apparent, becomes demonstrated in the midst of trials. Trials show your faith. Uh, he says a few things about trials. The first thing he says is that trials are inevitable. Trials and troubles are inevitable. He doesn't say if or if it ever should happen. He says when. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Trials will come. And we shouldn't be surprised, but we should expect trials to come. We should just say that's standard operating procedure for anyone on this earth, but specifically for Christians. We are, you know, see, what we do with, as Christians, though, I think, is we tend to think, well, I know there's going to be those little trials, and I get that. But then all of a sudden, this big honking trial comes through the door, and we're in trouble, and we're in tribulation, and we're in trials. And we're just going, no, that shouldn't happen. The little ones, yes, but the big ones, no. And when those start not knocking on your door, but knocking your door over, and you know, now you've got, a, you've got an issue. But we as Christians sometimes say, well, I, don't ex- I didn't expect that. I thought because I was a Christ follower, I was kind of uh, aloft from that or separated from that. But that doesn't square with real life, does it? And it really doesn't square with history. I mean, when you think about Jesus' disciples, they didn't do so well. You know, the pe- you know, think about Paul and the people that went with him. They didn't do so well either. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, not only will you have tribulation in the world, but if you follow Jesus, Jesus said, if they persecuted you, what do you think they're going to do? If they persecuted me, what do you think they're going to do to you? And so we should do that. So the next question is, okay, so if trials is our lot, trials and troubles are our lot, we're going to run into those, and some are little, but some are bigger, they're knock the door down troubles, how are we to respond to those? What are we supposed to do? And, and, and here's what he says. Notice he says you can experience joy in the midst of trials. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face the, the, the trials of many kinds. Now, here's where I think we make the mistake. We think that we should have joy before the trial or joy after the trial, but not in the middle of the trial. That's what we think. That's the way our brain works. We think, oh, if I could just get through this, or if nothing bad happens, if life, you know, then I can have joy. I just got to be over this. But that's not what James is saying. James is saying in the midst of trials, you can experience joy. And you say, well, that's just crazy. That's counterintuitive. I don't know what he's talking about there. How do you do this? James is very interesting because he says you have to look at the trial and you have to look at it with wisdom. And we'll talk more about that in a minute because it's important that we we do this. Because what I think happens is the trial comes and we're like suckers. We're like uh, somebody says, hey, look up here, and then we get hit in the gut, and we, do, we fall for it every time. And, 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 and instead of doing that, we need to say, okay, wait, be smart, be wise here, understand what's going on here, and that's what James wants us to do. He wants us to look beyond the trial and understand what suffering can do in our lives. Now, if I were to ask you to raise your hands, whether you're in the, in the audience here or at one of the campuses or online, if I were to ask you in, in your heart, in your mind right now, if I were to ask you to raise your hand and say, I am willing to go through trials because I know that it's necessary to grow my faith, most of us would say, yeah, I'm not raising my hand for that one. There's got to be an easier path. I mean, I'm an American. 
We, we, we don't go through trials. We avoid trials. We, 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 we take the easy road. We don't take the hard road. But what he's saying here is that we need to embrace suffering. And it's, it sounds counterintuitive. It sounds almost sadistic to say embrace suffering. It's good for you. It, it seems wrong. How, let me ask you a question. How do athletes get stronger, quicker, and gain more endurance? How do they do that? How do they do that? They do it because they have a coach or they have a teammate or they have someone else, a strength coach or an endurance coach or somebody who is barking at them, who is pushing them, who is running a stopwatch, who is telling them 10 more reps, who is telling them, give me two more, who's telling them, you need to go further and you think you can't do any more. And they say, one more, two more. And, and, you know, you're sitting there going, this is awful. I'm suffering here. I hate this. I don't like it. But if you're going to go faster, if you're going to get stronger, if you're going to have more endurance, you know you have to do it. You have to do it. You have to suffer. And then when you win that race, when you, 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 you put up that weight, whatever it is that you do, and you get that, you, you, don't, you look back and you don't remember the suffering. You, the suffering was necessary for you to get to this level. Now, let me give you an example. In the 19, 1950s, people thought that, if you, that no one was ever going to break the four-minute mile. They thought there's no way that's humanly Humans weren't meant to go faster than four minutes. Now, Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. He broke the four-minute mile in uh, 1954. He had a time, he didn't break it by much, 3.59.4. And everyone in the world thought that was the most amazing human feat on track and field that, it, that has ever been done. I mean, it was amazing that he broke this, this barrier that nobody ever thought could be broken. Ten years later, just 10 years later, a high school student broke the four-minute mile, and his time was 3.58.3. And if he had been at Bannister's race, he would have beat Bannister. Ten years later, he was a high school student. You want to know what the world record is for the mile today? 3.43.13. 3.43.13. You could stop, take a couple drinks from your drink, and take a few, you know, a couple breaths, walk around and say, Oh, Roger, good to see you cross the line. Four minutes was the barrier, but it's not the barrier, 4.43. Now, how do you get the time quicker? People learned how to train harder. People learned how to suffer. And people learned that that barrier could be broken if you were willing to suffer. You see, suffering and training is how you get stronger and faster and gain endurance. Uh, you can ask any athlete and they will tell you, they hate to train and they hate to suffer. But they know it's necessary. They're going to get better. They know that. In the same way, what James is saying is the same thing. Spiritually speaking, if you want to grow in maturity, you have to understand that trials are going to come. And you're going to suffer. And you're not going to like it. And it's going to be hard. And it's going to test you. And it's going to push you. But you know what? James says, rejoice in it. And he doesn't say you know thank god for it but just understand that there's a good thing that can come out of this if you allow it to happen trials can show your faith and they can grow your faith now 
James says trials are an opportunity for growth. But here's the, here's the point. If you don't walk in thinking about it, if you don't walk in and saying, I'm willing to suffer because I know it's going to grow my faith and it's going to grow my endurance and it's going to grow my patience and everything else. If you don't walk in with that attitude, then your, the trial will get on top of you and you'll become bitter and you'll become angry and you'll say, God, what are you doing in my life? Now, how many times have you done that? Where life has gone wrong and you just say, God, what are you doing? Well, why am I going through this? Why, why, why? why? And, and sometimes God doesn't give you the answer. Sometimes trials are there so that you can grow. Well, how does, how does suffering help you grow? Because you say, well, suffering in itself doesn't seem like it's going to help very much. How does suffering help you grow? Well, number one, suffering will humble you. Uh, look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Paul says this now. Therefore, in order to keep me from being, becoming conceited or proud, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Sounds like he's suffering. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, take it away from me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, my, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest upon me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulties. When I am weak, then I am strong. What is Paul saying there? I am willing to suffer because I know it will make me stronger. I know it will make me more dependent upon God. I know it will humble me. Paul says, the Lord knew I needed this to humble me. Suffering came into my life to humble me. You know, when you, when you are suffering, you become humble many times. We don't know what the thorn in the flesh was, but we know that it was a weakness that Paul pleaded with God. Finally, he came to a place where he humbled himself, and he said, if that's what God needs to do in my life to use me, I will humble myself and I will be used of God. And Paul, basically, Paul says, when I am weak, when I am humbled, then I am strong. Secondly, suffering will set you free. Now, what suffering does oftentimes is it takes something that you're relying on. It's sometimes a person. It's sometimes something that you're relying on. And it takes it away or it challenges it. And immediately, your life begins to fall apart. You say, well, I don't know what I'm going to do without this person or without this thing in my life. And what happens is we found that we've depended upon this thing. We struggled. We, we struggle without it. We think we can't live without it. We must have it in our lives. And God takes it away or challenges it. And then we say, what am I going to do? I am suffering here. And, and, and think about it. If something, many times... We, we come to a place and we say, it's taken out of our lives. And all of a sudden we say, what am I going to do without it? And the next thing you know, we suffer for a while. But then we say, well, you know what? It was nice to have that, but I, I can live without it. It's, it wasn't, I, I didn't have to have it. You see, when, when God takes something away, you, you must first, you must think, you think you must. What I'm saying is when God takes away something you must have, there's two things that happen in our lives, I think. The first one is, we realize that we need God more than ever. What happened to Paul when he got the thorn in the flesh? When his health, whatever it was, it was taken away. He said, oh, I'm not relying on God. I'm relying on my own power. Now I have to rely upon God more. That's the first thing that will happen. 
What's the second thing that will happen? The second thing that will happen is you realize that you really didn't need whatever was taken away. Paul basically said after, you know, three times coming to God and saying, God, help me, heal me, whatever it was that was the thorn, he finally came to a place and realized he didn't need it. In fact, he realized he was stronger without it. But if you had said that up front and said, just give it up without suffering, Paul would say, no, not, not going to do it. The suffering helps you loosen your grip on the people and things and grab on to God. And, and by doing that, you find a new freedom because you realize that the more you put your weight and trust in God, the more freedom you have. The world says exactly the opposite, but it's not true. Number three, suffering will make you more compassionate. People who, are suffer, who have suffered are likely to show more compassion to those who are going through suffering. Let me give you an example. So this was, it, you know how sometimes you say it was a couple years ago and then you look at it like seven years ago? Well, I don't know how long it was. Like five years ago, I had like tremendous back pain. Like, I mean, spasms and I went to the, the acute care and they gave me the shots and the doctor said, oh, this will take care of it. And he gave me the shot, and I still had the spasms, and it didn't do anything. And it was like this. I could feel it coming, and I felt it, and I said, you got to relax, you got to relax, you got to, I can't relax. I tightened and tightened and tightened. And I just, I was, I was, I was crying. I was in so much pain. And I have fairly high tolerance of pain, but I was in so much pain. People up to that point in my life had said, oh, I'm suffering with back pain. I said, let me pray for you. I had no idea. When somebody says, I'm struggling with back pain today, I go, oh man, I need to pray for you because <laughs> I kind of got an idea of what you might be going through. You see, that's what happens when you go through suffering. When people go through something that you're going through or you've been through, when they share that with you, you immediately connect with them. You say, I know what you're going through. You may not even say that out loud because you say, it's arrogant for me to even say that. But I know what you're going through. I need to pray with you. And I think it's Rick Warren. It says, God never wastes a hurt. If you've gone through a time of suffering, just expect that God is going to bring people in your lives that need your wisdom as you went through that trial and that tribulation. To share it with them because they don't know how to get out the other end. And you know how to get out the other end. You, God led you out that end. And maybe you can be the guide for somebody who's struggling in their life with whatever the, the suffering is. In other words, the point is I want you to see is suffering will make you more compassionate. Not just physical suffering, but any kind of suffering. Suffering will grow your faith. I think what suffering does in the end is it... It, it brings you to a put-up-or-shut-up place in your life where you have to say, why am I following God? Why am I placing my faith in God? That my life will go well, that I, things will be good for, in my life, that God will bless me, that all, you know, everything will be you know, hunky-dory, fine and dandy. Or, or is that it? Hardship and pain, and loss, and trials, and tribulation will quickly reveal the state of your faith. It really will. You'll come to a place and you'll say, whoops, <laughs> what's going on? The question I'm asking you is this one, and I think it's what James is asking. 
Why do you follow Jesus? Are you with him as long as you have the good life? Or are you even in with him when life goes south? When life isn't pleasant, when life isn't good. And you go to God and you say, I'm still there because you're still there. Look at what Peter says. It's very interesting. This is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He says, dear, dear friends, do not... It's similar to what James says. This is all through the New Testament. This isn't just James. It's all through the New Testament. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though it's something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the Spirit of God, uh, Spirit of glory of, of glory of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should be as a, not as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal, even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Peter was basically saying, it is an honor to suffer like my Lord. It's an honor. It's an honor to be insulted as one of his followers. It's an honor to be misunderstood by one of his followers. It's an honor to be rejected by people because I'm one of his followers and because I love him. It's an honor. Some say, tradition says, that, that, the, that Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't feel it was right for him to suffer in the same way as his Lord. I'm not worthy to die in the way that you died. So, James, is, let's just review quickly. James basically saying trials are going to come. It's not a matter of if, it's when. He also says that there is a, there, there, you can consider it joy because within the suffering, there's, there's something good that can come out of it. There's a purpose that can happen in your life. There's something that can transform you, that can grow maturity and build patience into your life. And then number three, he says, the one thing you need to have in the midst of trials is wisdom. Now, what does he mean by that? What is the, what, what is the one thing we need in a trial and suffering is wisdom? And he, he says this. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives it generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Now, we need to talk a little bit about wisdom because... There's wisdom and then there's wisdom, right? <laughs> there's a lot of wisdom out there in the world. Um, let me talk a little bit about the wisdom of this world, okay? Because I think the wisdom of this world is messed up. This world wisdom believes that we're in charge and that we can solve anything. You know, if something goes wrong... We'll find a politician, a doctor, an educator, a scientist. We'll find somebody, an expert, who can fix it. With enough time, with enough knowledge, with enough money, we can fix it. We have evolved, we've, we've evolved as a society, and we've come to a place, in our, especially in our American culture, where suffering should not happen. We, 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 don't, we will not accept suffering. Do you know this is a new transition? Because most of, the, most of history since the garden, since the fall just said suffering is a part of life. It just is. You go to third world countries and you see how they suffer in third world countries and you go, why are they allowing that? Why don't they just, why do they put up with it? Why, don't they, why do they accept it? It's because that's been their lot. 
Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't try to make life better, but we just have this attitude that suffering is something that we should never do, we should never settle for, we, it should never be part of our lives. We need to rid ourselves of it. But I just want to tell you, this is a new thing that's happening. And we have become people who are really kind of whiners when it comes to suffering. We go through trials, and a lot of the world would look at us and say, what are you whining about? I mean, come on. You're, you, you complain about this, you complain about that. This is awful, this is awful, this is awful. Let me tell you about awful. Let me tell you about where I live. Let me tell you about the water I drink, which I don't have much of. Let me tell you about uh, you know, my, health, my health insurance. Don't have any. Let me tell you about my dent. I don't have dental. Let me tell you about the next meal I have. I don't know where it's coming from. Let me tell you that because that's probably 80% of the rest of the world. And yet we complain because our life is, we suffer. The rest of the world's looking at us and saying, that's troubling. That's the wisdom of this world. And again, I'm not saying let's go back and let's just give up all the, you know, the comforts and that and, and feel guilty about it. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we whine a lot and we complain a lot and we have it better than most people in the world. Probably better than... We're in the top 8% of the world as far as the richest, most prosperous people on the planet. Yet we whine like we've got nothing and when I go to Haiti or I go to West Africa and I look at the people, they're generally happy even though many of them are suffering. Secondly, this world's wisdom believes that we aren't all sinners, that we're just sick. You know, today when people say, well, I'm angry, I'm bitter, I'm anxious, I'm fearful, I'm unforgiving, we say, well, you must have a psychosis. Now, I'm not dismissing that there aren't psychological disorders and I don't, you know, I talked about this a a week ago. I I believe that there is mental illness and the physical affects the spiritual, the material and the immaterial have an interrelation. I get all that. Don't know where one ends and one begins. I don't have all the answers to that. But what I'm asking is this. I'm asking that we've given up this idea on sin. We've given up this idea that we are fallen creatures. We are given up, we've given up on this idea that maybe the problem has to do with a spiritual dimension. Maybe the problem that I'm struggling with has a moral dimension to it. Maybe some of the suffering that I'm going through isn't due to, isn't due to some psychosis that I have, but something going on in my heart. And I don't mean my physical heart. Is it possible that just maybe some of our problems are due to the fact that we are fallen sinners and we make poor choices? Number, let me give you one more. The world's wisdom believes that we will find our life this side of heaven. And I think that's one of the most crushing ones because some people are really struggling and they're saying, I've lost all hope because all my hope is in this world and I have no hope beyond this life. And, and so, you, you know, you see the rash of suicides. Um, our culture is working hard to rid us of any belief in God. But here's the problem. When you rid the world of God and heaven... You're only left with this life in this world. If you put all your eggs in the here and now basket when life gets hard and you go through trials, you say, I don't have a reason to live. When you don't believe that God is in the midst of the trials and tribulations with you, you say, I'm here alone. There's no one here. There's no one who cares. 
We're seeing this played out in a, in a very devastating way in our culture today. Well, what, what, what's the wisdom from above? Because James says, when you need wisdom in the midst of these trials, ask God and he will give it to you liberally. He will give you the wisdom that you need. Well, what is the wisdom that we need? The heavenly wisdom is that you know you're a fallen fool. And, and what I mean by that is that suffering takes on new meaning when you know that you're a sinner, that you're a fallen sinner, that you sin and that you uh, make poor choices. You, you wake up every day as a sinner, hopefully, if you've understood grace and mercy properly, and you're amazed that God would show you his grace and mercy daily. You're amazed that God would love you unconditionally, even though you're a sinner. You're amazed that God would call you a son or daughter when you don't deserve it. You're amazed that Jesus would go to the cross for you and give his life for you, that he would get off of his throne in heaven, come to earth, live the life you should have lived, die the death you should have died, and say, it is finished for you. You're amazed by that. You can't get over that. You're just stunned by it. You're, you just, you, you, so you approach suffering uh, knowing that you have a very limited knowledge of this world. You approach suffering with humility. You can better manage it. And you have an important tool to handle it because you say suffering is part of my lot. It was part of my Lord's lot. It's part of my lot. So I'm not surprised by it. I'm not, I'm not overwhelmed. I, mean, I may be overwhelmed by it, but I'm not put off because I know that he enters... Into this, he entered into the suffering world for me, and he enters into my suffering with me. And he provided a way out of suffering for me. Heavenly thinking, you know that suffering is not the original plan. Um, we know in our hearts, and I think this is one of the things that's interesting to me. Many people who reject God say, well, there shouldn't be suffering. Well, who says? where'd you get that idea? Where'd you get the idea that there shouldn't be suffering? How, what, how do you make a moral... If you've dismissed God, if you've dis, dismissed and we say we're just evolved creatures living in a material world, where did you get this idea that we shouldn't, there shouldn't be uh, evil and there shouldn't be suffering and there shouldn't be pain and there shouldn't be any of those things, that those things are wrong? Here's where you get it from. Whether you acknowledge God or not, whether, you know, Romans 1 says they, they, they did not acknowledge God. Whether you acknowledge God or not, there is a, there is a part of you, there is a, a piece of you that says, I know that there is good and there is evil. I know that there is, there is that suffering is not, shouldn't be part of this life. That there's something wrong in the world. There's something wrong in me. I know that deep within my soul. I know it. I may never admit it to anyone, but I know it. And that's what the philosopher Pascal kind of came across. He basically said, essentially Pascal said, uh, he said the very fact that we are outraged with suffering proves that we are not built for it. It points to a world without suffering where there is hope and where God is. That was one of his arguments he made for God. He says, if there's no God, then there's no reason to say there shouldn't be suffering. But if you think there's suffering, that means the opposite is true. There should be joy and, and life. Well, where's that going to be? See, the Bible tells us that suffering was not part of the original plan and that one day suffering will end. But how? How? Well, heavenly wisdom says that you know that your suffering was shared by our Savior. And that's, that's kind of where I want to end. Uh, one of the things that we have that James had and is trying to get us to understand is that his brother, Jesus, 
not only lived a perfect life, not only is God, and not only did James call him my servant, or my, my, my Lord, I'm the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he realized that his brother, his Savior, went to a cross for him. His brother, his Savior, suffered for him, entered into the suffering, and, and he, he understood that he needed a Savior, and he understood that Jesus saved him not only from suffering, but also gave him a place in heaven. You see, Jesus entered into our suffering. He didn't give in when he suffered. He held his ground. Remember when he was on the cross, they mocked him. And one of the things they mocked him, they said, if you are the Son of God, come on down. Come on down. Really? You're the Son of God? Well, Son of God, you should have the power to come on down. But you know what? For you and for me, he held his ground. He finished the race. And our redemption and our forgiveness came out of his suffering. If he didn't suffer, we would have no hope today. But he went to the cross. And so what does he want us to do? He wants us to do the same thing that he did on the cross. He stood in there and he suffered because he understood that that suffering was going to produce something incredibly important. And we are all the beneficiaries of that suffering. Let me just close with what Peter says. This is 1 Peter 2.21. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseers, and overseer of your souls. James says, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face various trials, because these trials can have a purpose in your life. Don't over, be overwhelmed. Don't be surprised by them. But go to God and ask for God for wisdom. And if you need to know who's, what example to follow, just go to the cross and remember how Jesus held his ground for you. And understand, not only did he hold his ground for you, but he promised that in the midst of suffering, I will be there. Look for him in the midst of suffering, and you will find him. Stand with me, let's pray. Father, a lot has been said. We've gone down a path that is a hard path. Some folks uh, are listening and right now, and they're going through a difficult time, a trial, a tribulation, they're suffering, and they wonder when it's going to stop. I pray, Father, that you'd help them to look to the cross and see Jesus who held his ground in suffering. I pray that they would look for Jesus in the midst of their suffering, because they will find him. And I pray, Father, that through their trial, you would help them to grow in patience, that you would give them wisdom. And that you would give them the hope that one day all suffering will be done. 
We thank you for the hope that you give us. We thank you for the wisdom that you give us. We thank you for your word that you've given us. We ask that you would apply it to our hearts, that we will not soon forget what we have seen, what we have heard. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.